Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And uh, as usual, we're trying to provide you with resources to optimize your health, especially in light of all of the things and challenges we've been exposed to recently. So we have a real treat today. We're going to be uh, talking with Dr. Frank Schallenberger, who has been a physician, not just a physician, but a natural medicine physician for nearly five decades, a true pioneer in the field who's, uh, from my perspective, and it's admittedly biased uh, and prejudiced, I think one of his biggest contributions is he is the person that's single-handedly responsible for implement, implementing my favorite intervention for upper respiratory infections in COVID, including SARS-CoV-2, which is nebulized peroxide. He figured that out last century, last century. Yes, Dr. Thomas Levy and I have been promoting it, but he was certainly the earliest adopter and Dr. Brownstein too. So, uh, and sadly, it's been so widely disparaged and discredited that not as many people could use it as they could, but those that do find their way around to it are really impressed with it. So we're gonna talk a lot about different things, Dr. Schallenberg's history, and, and hopefully you'll be learning a lot of great strategies that you can use to optimize your health. So welcome with that intro, and thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for a nice intro, Joe. It's great to be with you. Yeah, so why don't you just give us a little bit of your journey, because you're really true, uh, truly one of the pioneers out there. You've been around so long and uh, just really... Uh, innovating you know that's the really thing about really good thing about you and we discussed this prior to going uh hitting the record button but you know you are the sort of the take the ideal characteristics of physician which is you're a perpetual student you don't want to get bored and 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 i i believe truly the vast majority of physicians stop that learning process soon after they finish their last uh, certification examination so it's sad because, uh, you know, and it's understandable, though, because they're really confined to almost a protocols that are dictated by medical boards or the government or both. And, and there's not really much room for innovation. But, you know, you and I both take a different perspective. And <laughs> it's the last thing we're going to be using is the, the conventional medical approaches. So there, there it's kind of fun, exciting to see what you can find out and, and and utilize the foundational principles of biology to optimize health. So why don't you tell us a little about your journey? Because we're excited to hear how that occurred. Well, okay, that could be a pretty long story, but- uh, Well, yeah, yeah, I briefed it up somewhat because I want you to share your pearls with us. And that's really where the highlights are gonna come. Okay, so, um, well, you know, for me, it all started uh, uh, with trauma medicine. And in, in retrospect, I reflected on this, but, uh, you know, I, I came after I graduated from medical school and went into trauma medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, so for those that are listening, that means I'm in a, a trauma unit and people being flown in and they have gunshot wounds and God knows what else going on. And, uh, you know, that's what I did for about six, seven years. And after a while, I thought, you know, maybe I'd like to get a decent night's sleep. So I thought <laughs> uh, uh, I'm going to go ahead and just 
I'm going to open, hang my shingle up, and I'm going to be like your basic uh, uh, general practitioner slash internist. Mm-hmm. That's what I did. I was doing that for about six months, and I very quickly realized, number one, nobody's getting well. And uh, 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 too much of a significant amount of time, they're getting sick from the drugs I'm giving them. Uh, and, and then I reflected back on it, Joe, that in, in, in trauma medicine, you know, we look for the actual cause of the problem. You know, if you've, uh, it, with, but with internal medicine these days, you don't actually do that. Uh, so, you know, if I, I, I like use the analogy, like if you, if you practice trauma medicine, like you do internal medicine, the guy would come into the emergency room with a knife in his back and you'd give him some Prozac and send him home. And, but in trauma medicine, we actually pull the knife out, sew up the wound and correct the damage. So anyhow, well, that's, that's, the way that's I one of the few indications for conventional medicine is trauma medicine. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's legitimate medicine. And I thought all medicine was like that. So that I hang, <laughs> yeah, where do I, know? I hang my shingle out and uh, I have to go to the, uh, the medical director of my hospital. And I, I say, look, I'm new to this. I've only been doing this for about six months. Uh, but, you know, seriously, none of my patients are getting better. And too many of them are getting kind of sick with the medicines I'm giving them. So, you know, he reviewed everything that I'm doing. And he said, no, you're pretty much doing it. Right. And I, I said, but, you know, nobody's getting better. And boy, that was an eye opener. He looked at me in the eye and he said, you know what? Really, nobody ever really gets better. That's not the idea. The idea is to, you know, make them feel better, give them some symptomatic control, help them out, ease their misery, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's when I thought, you know, something's wrong with this picture, because aren't we supposed to look for why the person's sick? Besides, you know, I understand we want to alleviate symptoms. But aren't we supposed to try and figure out why they're sick in the first place? And that's what kind of started me off, Joe. And I got lucky because I was in the Bay Area at the time, San Francisco Bay Area. And Linus Pauling was having a study groups meeting once a month in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, good fortune put me in that study group. And uh, so here I'm sitting with these uh, basic geniuses like Abram Hoffer and and the Mm -hmm. rest back in those days. And, uh, you know, just a kid, just a kid listening to this stuff going on. And boy, my eyes were open real quickly. No, there are fundamental causes and there are many causes why people get sick. And and the reason this job never gets boring and the reason you have to be innovative is because human beings are different. Mm -hmm. If we're all genetically identical, it'd be a a lot easier to do what we do. If they all lived in the exact same households, ate the same uh, food, so forth and so on. But no, that's not the case. We're dealing with a different animal every time we see somebody. So you have to like dig deep. You've got to get innovative. You've got to figure out in that person's life what's going on. And that's kind of what got me here, you know, over and over again. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I'm always striving to learn new things, trying to get, get a better handle on what's going on. But that's what I've been doing the last 50 years. Oh, you've, you've compiled a variety of not widely adopted or available treatments that you use in your practice. Some of them are re- really uncommon. Uh, bioidentical hormone treatment, I think we both learned from uh, um, Jonathan. Jonathan. <laughs> yes, Jonathan. Yeah. What's his, Jonathan. Jonathan's, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so he brought it into the country and 
you know, he really is, is a pioneer in that. And I've interviewed him a few times, but if you're using ozone and something I want you to talk about with this bioenergy testing, and of course, chelation, which is pretty much standard for those of us who are practicing in the eighties and nineties. Um, and then you got colon hydrotherapy with ozone. Uh, so, but it's interesting, this bioenergy test, and I was particularly intrigued with because there's not many places that do it in the country. You're one of the few, and you actually innovated and developed this approach. It's like a metabolic therapy machine, not a metabolic therapy, metabolic testing unit, like a chamber. And there's only a few of those in the country, but you developed a derivative of that that's a lot easier to do, and you can get some really valuable data. And whenever I get my butt over to your clinic or one, um, probably Dr. Minkoff in Florida, who, who also offers that testing that he learned from you. Uh, I've got to get that testing done because it's so, so intriguing. So why don't you just give us a brief overview of that? And I want to have a dialogue then again, get some of the best interventions you learned in over 50 years, because you've got a lot of pearls hidden in that brain of yours. Um, you know, I like, I like to ride bicycles, so I'll, I'll never forget one day. And one, one of the nice things about riding bicycles is you got to pay attention to what's going on and a lot of free-floating ideas go in and out of your head most of them are ridiculous but i do uh yeah at the time i was riding the bike this day uh i had been thinking about the fact that um as people get older and this is all record was recognized at the time this was maybe 25 years ago but we knew at the time as people get older um and uh, their, their mitochondria function decreases. They don't, mm -hmm. Their mitochondria don't work so well. And that this is a hallmark of disease mm -hmm. uh, and the hallmark of the entire aging process. So I'm sitting there riding my bike. And I'm thinking, yeah, people get older and the mitochondria get worse as they get older. And uh, for, for listeners, mitochondria are those parts of the cell where oxygen uh, basically releases its energy. That's what powers up the cell. That's what keeps us alive. Is, is that the that interaction between oxygen and the mitochondria. And that decreases as we get older and it decreases with diseases. So I'm riding my bike and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you know, you get older, your mitochondria get worse. And some crazy thought came into my head and said, well, what if your mitochondria get worse before you get older? What if the reason the mitochondria get worse is there's other factors that destroy them early on? And I thought, well, why not? Maybe that's the case. Uh, so uh, I thought, you know what, mitochondria are important, and they're so darn important. Why is it that nobody tests for it? Why is there no test for it? I mean, blood is important. There's not a conventional test. Yeah. Blood sugar is important. We got to test for that. You know, mitochondria are probably maybe even more important than blood sugar or blood pressure, but nobody tests for it. So, I mean, literally, nobody was testing for it uh, at that time, maybe in research centers, but not, not actual practice. And so, I, you know, I went through a whole bunch of gyrations later on, trying to figure out how, how, how in the world can you, in fact, measure mitochondria in a clinical setting. And, uh, and I came up with this system uh, that evaluates how much oxygen you consume and in real time, how much CO2 you produce. And uh, using the, that and some data that's been around only since the 1930s, uh, I was able to develop a, a way to assess mitochondrial function. And very quickly, very quickly learned some absolutely fascinating things about mitochondrial function that they never taught me in medical school. I don't even, they're probably still teaching the same nonsense. I don't know. But, but some things that, that just contradicted what I had heard in medical school, and I'm doing the measurements. 
So I call the I call the uh, the guys that make this equipment, which is all FDA approved equipment, and I say, hey, there's something wrong with your equipment. These numbers can't possibly be right. And so they come out, check out, you know, and they say, nope, my equipment's pretty good. So um, so I said, well, how come I'm getting these crazy numbers? And they say, I don't know. Uh, so I thought, you know, I, I have to dig into this a little bit more. Joe, it was then I discovered that all the data, at that time at least, on oxygen consumption uh, was, was really done in two classes of people. On the one hand, were Olympic athlete types, those people. And on the other hand, it was people getting ready to have heart transplants or lung transplants. There's this, those were the extremes that all the data was being published on. Joe Lunchbox in the middle, there wasn't anything on that guy. And those are my patients. Mm -hmm. It turns out that a lot of them, even, and we, we published a study on this, but even in their 30s, asymptomatic people, even in their 30s, were having significantly decreased mitochondrial function. So I developed this early, this term called early onset mitochondrial dysfunction. In other mm -hmm. words, mitochondria aren't working before the aging process has happened. Mm -hmm. And then I started to think, maybe that's why the aging process is happening because of the mitochondria are going down even in your 30s and 40s and as they go down that's why people get sick so the rationale at that point was i don't want any of my patients getting older uh, unless they have youthful mitochondrial function so that was my goal and that's a lot of the stuff that i've learned over the years is how you maximize that uh, how you deal with that, and and everybody, as you as you know, is so 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 unique that different people require different things to get that in balance. But that that's sort of how I got here to a large extent. I couldn't agree more with you that the mitochondrial function is at the core of most diseases, especially one of the ones that are enigmas to to most clinicians, and that would be things like chronic fatigue syndrome, mm. which would seems to me would might be a at the core is mitochondrial dysfunction. I'm wondering if you've done any correlations with the data you've compiled, but looking at to see the, the extent of mitochondrial dysfunction in chronic fatigue, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia, those types of diseases that, you know, the typical clinician will shrug their shoulders and say, I don't know what's causing it. Yeah. So uh, I, again, I got lucky because uh right around the corner up in Incline Village, which is not far from where I live. That's uh, that, yeah, chronic fatigue. Yeah, doc, Dr. Cheney was right in the middle of that. And Cheney actually published some studies in the early 90s using pulmonary gas analysis, which is what I use for mitochondrial function. Mm. Now, he wasn't, he, he wasn't, uh, he didn't name mitochondria in there, okay? Mm -hmm. But he's using the same darn data. And mm -hmm. he's able to show from his data that you could literally diagnose uh, chronic fatigue syndrome based upon uh, uh, oxygen uptake and CO2 production. And that mm. was back in the early 90s. So he, he published all that stuff. And But here's the thing, Joe. Uh, we looked at 30 patients uh, in their 30s, all of whom, men and women, all of whom um, were asymptomatic, felt good, no problems. In fact, most of them were athletes to some extent and just wanted to see how good their VO2 max was. And, and out of those 30, 12% of them would have fit Cheney's diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. Wow. Is that crazy? 
And when I saw that, that's, that's when I had to call the people up and say, there's something wrong with my machine. But when I saw that, I thought, are you kidding me? If 12% of people in their 30s already have mitochondrial dysfunction, out of those 30 people, guess who's going to get diabetes in about 20 years? Guess who's going to get cancer in about 20 years? I'm betting on those 12%. I'm not betting on the people that actually have good mitochondrial function. And it occurred to me, this is happening before people get sick, not necessarily after. Absolutely. And I, I would imagine a good percentage of those people with it who are also predisposed to things like SARS-CoV-2. So well, yeah. people so they die prematurely yeah. because they, they don't have the metabolic resources to compensate for it. Exactly. And we all know that as clinicians, we know that you get, you get a group of people and they're all exposed to the same issue and only a percentage of them go down from it. We see this over and over again. So have you seen, did you see a correlation with a, a mitochondrial dysfunction in those, those chronic diseases? Oh yeah, all the time. Okay. It's not how bad their mitochondria, it's not if they have mitochondria that are dysfunctional, it's how bad is it? No. I guarantee you they got, so we can actually quantitate it. And so if they come in with say 50% uh, of what, what would be considered optimal, Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we do some treatment and they come back in like five, six months later and they're at 70 percent. That's good. Mm-hmm. That's really good. You know, and they're yeah. not seeing where we want to get them, but at least we can see some progression. The best of my knowledge, there is no really consistent clinical or, or tool that clinicians have to assess this. I mean, I mean, oh. we know about it intellectually and academically, but we don't have the tools to measure it. Think about think of, think about the fact that mitochondria are so critically important. I don't think anybody argues against that. No, no. Yeah, and yet we're like a bunch of doctors treating blood pressure without a blood pressure cuff. We don't know how to diagnose the problem. We don't know how to, if our treatments are making the problem better because we've got no way to monitor it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, as an internist to, to and especially as one that's interested in prevention, to, to be without something that measures mitochondrial function, you're at a loss. It's like cardiologists without a stethoscope or something. It just doesn't, it's not going to work very well. So um, I'm wondering from how long you've been using this tool for about tw- yeah. over 20 I, years. I, I basically came up with the original uh, computer program for it. Um, maybe I think around 2004. Oh, so this century. Okay. Yeah. So we had to, we had to work a little bit more at it to get it down. I would say it's been, been pretty much rock solid for a good last six, seven, eight years. There were some issues, not only with the equipment, but with some mm-hmm. of the equations. calibration and yeah. consistency. Yeah. So from your use of that tool for the last six or seven years, I'm wondering uh, what, in your experience, what have been the most effective interventions to move the marker? Or is, is the, you really can't give a generalization because it depends on the individual. The first time I got this, Joe, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, like probably a lot of us would think, well, what supplements are going to make this better? Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, okay, coenzyme Q10, mm-hmm. I'm thinking B vitamins, I'm thinking mm-hmm. you know, anything that has to do with mitochondria, carnitine, whatever. I'm thinking about all these things. So I keep trying things. I'm doing a lot of before and after studies, taking mm-hmm. somebody and then putting them on something then bringing them back with no other interventions and seeing if their mitochondria function gets better. 
And of all the things that I tested, the only substance that really worked great um, was ozone and B vitamins. No. <laughs> B vitamins. Go, well, you know that mitochondria, what, they need niacin, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're not going to make any without niacin. So they're right. Niacinamide. All yeah. that. And then I, then I start reflecting back to guys like Abram Hoffer, who are in the 50s, are pointing out that some people actually require massive doses of niacin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I'm adding all that up and I'm saying, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But of all the things I tested, B vitamins and ozone, in terms of substances, okay. yeah, and we'll get really sure. up. So let, let's stick with that before we go to the other interventions. Uh, what type of uh, dosages with the B vitamins was, and was it a B complex or specific B sub, B, B, Bs that you were using? At the time I was using uh, Myers cocktails. Uh, so I was literally, in, I didn't want to, you know, deal with the absorption issue. So I was, mm-hmm. we were using parenteral vitamins. Uh, so we were using typically a, what you see in a, in a Myers, which is relatively lower doses. Uh, now, orally speaking, I think with niacin, you can go up to 2000 milligrams easy on some patients, which is like, uh, not, not to start, not to start with that dose, not to start with. No, I don't start. I start like for the average, no. like for for somebody that actually doesn't have a problem, I yeah. typically give them about 100, 200 milligrams a day. Uh, okay. For people that do have problems, we escalate from there. So you, you focus on the niacin or do you use the B-complex? Uh, I use the B-complex because I like to balance it out, but I'm focusing primarily on niacin, uh, folate, and riboflavin. Okay, good. And, you, and many people may not appreciate that you said folate, not folic acid. <laughs> Which is the which is the good one, <laughs> folate. Good folate, yeah. So okay, so that, and how long did it take before implementing these doses before you notice a change in the mitochondrial function? Boy, it could be two three weeks. Mitochondria okay. um, are so vulnerable. I mean, I have literally seen patients have great mitochondrial function be under stress for mm-hmm. like two months, and their mitochondria are wiped out just from emotional stress. I, I'm actually pretty sure, and I haven't done the studies, but I'm pretty sure that if you get under a lot of emotional stress, I bet you mitochondria suffer a hit within 48 hours. Oh, yeah, I've listened to previous podcasts of yours and uh, you, one of the, the podcasters asked you a question of how do you know, or what's the best test if uh, to assess someone's cortisol level, which of course related to stress. And he says, well, they're in my office. <laughs> Uh, that's a good one. But um, all right. So what type of quali- quantitative improvement did you see in the mitochondrial function? Was it 10%, 20, 30, 50? Or what's the range you noticed? You know, um, it, it varies just enormously. So, you know, as you would expect, some of us have just a bomb-proof mitochondria. That's the way we came into the world. And mm-hmm. we go on to some details about that. But I remember I used to, in my early days, I used to race bicycles. And, you know, we're, here we are at the end of an 80-mile race. We're going up some crummy mountain pass, and I'm about half dead. And I do remember this one guy, he, he won most of the races, but he would, like, ride up alongside me and want to chit-chat. And I can, like, barely breathe. And, and finally, he gets tired of talking, so he zips on up past me. And, you know, 
but, but we run into people like this, these just incredible people. But then on the other end of the spectrum, there you have the other group. They have just bad mitochondria and you'll probably never get them optimal. Um, at least I haven't figured out how to do it with everybody. So we just try to make them better. So there's a lot of genetic issues that come to play here. And then of course, innumerable environmental issues. Have you ex ever explored working with the peptides, uh, like specifically SS31, which is elmipertide, which goes in there and specifically changes the curve of the Criste in, in the uh, inner mitochondrial membrane? Uh, I want to talk to you some more about that. Uh, the one I'm getting new to peptides, so uh, it's the I'm, only peptide I recommend. It's the only one, and it's really, mod, really mod hard to get because there's patents on it. Do you have anything on MOTC? No, no. I have the only, only peptide I looked at is SS31. Okay, so MOTC is supposed to be pretty good at this, and they're coming out with some some very interesting peptides about this. But I'm a, I'm a novice at peptides. I really. All right, we got to we got to get you hooked up with that because I think it's you've got the tools to measure this, and I think I mean yeah. there's a lot of literature showing it. I mean they it's so impressive they use it for genetic SNPs where they they have disorders where the, the, these many of these people died at an early age because of mitochondrial genetic dis dysfunctions, but they're giving them this SS31. It's compensating for that because it really gets in there and radical. I've never seen anything work like this thing. Heart no, failure, wow. which is crazy good. Can you get anyway, we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk after. Okay. All right. Get you up uh, to speed on that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the great things about this testing process is as a research tool. Yeah, absolutely. Like you just talked about. So, so the other two, other physical resource you've suggested that had a benefit was the ozone. So there's a wide variety of different ozone interventions. And actually, I'm going to start focusing on ozone quite a bit later this year because there's a new uh, method of delivering it. It's called EBU, which is short for extracorporeal blood ozone and oxygenation. And uh, I think that may be the, the emerging is the, the best way, but why don't you describe the simple, because you've been doing this a long time. I've never did ozone in my, my clinic when I was seeing patients, but I've come to appreciate it since uh, stopping seeing patients, how benefit, beneficial it is. And I've had it regularly done on myself. So why don't you give us a summary of that and what you used to see in your, your testing to see what worked? Well, uh, first of all, people should understand that ozone is, when we talk about ozone in medicine, we're not talking about ozone in, in the atmosphere. We're mm -hmm. talking about a very pure molecule. It's pure oxygen, period. There's nothing else in there. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, and, and so regular oxygen that we breathe in a room air is what we call O2. That's two oxygen atoms combined together. Ozone is basically three oxygen atoms combined together. And what, what makes that, that, that molecule so unique is that it is very electron deficient. It needs electrons big time. So as soon as you put that into the human body or into any tissue, it's gonna start grabbing electrons. And as it grabs the electrons, it's gonna form molecules called peroxides. And so after this ozone treatment, you're loaded up with peroxides to whatever degree you got the treatment. And these peroxides can stay in the body for a good seven, maybe as much as 10, maybe even 14 days. And so they, these peroxides are what mediates the various um, physiological and biochemical effects of ozone. And, uh, and they're also, by the way, uh, molecules that are uh, 
electron diffusion. And so we can talk a little bit about, you know, implications for that on mitochondria, but but that that is kind of what makes the mitochondria go around of electrons. They're both ROSs, reactive oxygen species. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. So and um, and this gen is gen the um, their peroxides are generated from the use of pure medical grade oxygen cylinders running through a machine that converts that pure oxygen with no uh, impurities in it to a pure ozone. Yeah. Because you, you can use like an oxygen generator, which is going to, which is going to not be ideal, especially if you're going to be injected into. Yeah, you can't do that except maybe for topical uses. Mm-hmm. You're, like, you're applying, applying the gas to the skin, but you don't want to apply that particular gas internally. You want it to be from pure O2, like you said. Yeah, so that, that's a key. And then I learned from you that I, I you know, ostensibly would think, well, it's an oxidative stress. Well, let's bump, uh, bump up the antioxidants before the treatment. Things like vitamin C, which you're a big fan of, and I'm sure you use intravenously regularly. But that's not a good idea with those, and you don't use the vitamin C before. Can you tell us why? Well, the reason is because I want these peroxides. So when the ozone goes into the tissue, I want it to be interacting with lipids and maybe amino acids. I don't want it to interact with ascorbate. If it'll, that, then I'll get dehydroascorbate. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for peroxides. So any so basic basic uh, th- basic thinking with ozone therapy is you really never want to give any kind of substance uh, that's going to donate electrons like vitamin C or glutathione. Mm-hmm. You don't want to give any of those kind of molecules prior to the treatment. Yeah. You want to maximize peroxide production. Now, after the treatment, yeah, now we're, that we won't do it after, but you got to have that sequence correct. Yeah, I'm wondering if you've explored the use of a selective antioxidants like molecular hydrogen, which mm-hmm. go in and cause the body to make its own internal antioxidants, you know, that catalase, superoxide dismutase, glutathione, peroxidase, and reductase. So, uh, but it doesn't do it if there's no oxidative stress. So you could give it before and it wouldn't make these antioxidant molecules until after the ozone was administered. And there's, it seems like the delay would be close to optimal because you're going to be able to create those peroxides that you mentioned, and then they kick in. So you're suggesting we put the hydrogen first? Well, molecular hydrogen prior, and not, not like a day before, maybe an hour before. So it's oh, on board and ready to go. Interesting. Actually, I did an experiment uh, maybe four or five years ago where I took molecular hydrogen and injected the sub-Q in one leg and injected ozone sub Q in the other leg, figuring mm. out to generate an electrical current uh, through the human. What, what, what happened? What, was, what, would you, what did you notice? Nothing much clinically. I did it on a number of patients. I thought it was what helped like neuropathy or something. I didn't see that. But mm. I mean, it's a very interesting co- concept combining hydrogen and ozone. Super interesting. Yeah, because I think there is a potential downside for the ozone. You can overdo it and you get too much oxidative stress, but the hydrogen would be really effective. I, I, it's one of my favorite supplements and I, and I love ozone. So what, what ozone intervention did you do with the mitochondrial testing? Was it just a regular uh, ozone IV? Is it 10 pass or? Yes. So uh, as, as it turns out, ozone is a hormetic molecule has a hormetic clinical effect. 
which which uh, for listeners that that means at low doses it does one thing as you increase the dose high enough it starts doing the exact opposite so deciding on the dose for ozone is pretty critical for for mitochondrial function for stimulation and for most of the reasons that i use ozone i'm going to use relatively small doses in the order say 10 maybe 12 milligram type doses. Those are the ones that work great for mitochondrial stimulation. As and you, you look you look at the higher higher doses too? No, higher doses actually you're gonna have a suppressive action on things. And and you didn't and you saw that you tested that with the, the test that you have? I actually have not done that. Okay. But, but you just have done okay. that. I'm looking at that clinically and also there's a lot of data to support that, especially when it comes around to immune system function. Yeah, and I'm not disputing you because you're the expert. In fact, you have a regular ozone conference that you that you put on that you invited me to speak at this year in uh, Colorado. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's probably that's the first event I'm speaking at this year. It's like halfway into the year, <laughs> but or even more. When is it in October or June? It's, uh, it's in June. 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 Okay. Yeah, June. That's gonna be. It's, it'll be fun. So. Uh, yeah. So the oh, so have have you started looking into the using Ebu at all? Uh, interestingly enough, back in the early nineties, Carpendale uh, published some studies where he took um, serum. Mm -hmm. He bubbled ozone through the serum. So now he's got a test tube of peroxides, and then then he would take a culture of HIV pour that serum on the culture and kill all the HIV. So I thought at the time, wow, I'm gonna be super famous because I'm gonna cure AIDS. And so I'm not gonna be using my tiny little doses, which I've been using like eight milligram, maybe 10 milligram doses on my AIDS patients. And they got better and everything was great, okay? But I wouldn't cure anybody. Uh, and I thought, well, this is a, this is a no brainer. So I invented an Ebu-like device where we had two pumps. I had a 14-gauge needle on one side. 14-gauge. 14 14-gauge. 14 How many people can you fit a 14-gauge in? Well, <laughs> I found them. And, wow. Uh, and then I had pumps on each arm. And what we would do is pump the blood out into this cascading device where it got admixed with uh, ozone. And there's no filter. Like with even now, I think they have filters. But yeah, yeah. Filter. We just ozonated the blood and pumped it back to the other side. And basically, I treated their entire blood volume five times per session. So it was gigantic. Yeah, you could do that with a 14. Regularly, we use Enormous 18. doses of ozone. Yeah. And I would do that every day. And we published a study on this where I did it for two weeks. And, you know, I was convinced these these uh, these men with AIDS would like get, you know, so much better and everything be wonderful. Guess what? What? Do any better than I did with the lower doses. <laughs> with, with, you know, with a 20 gauge needle in about 45 minutes with no pumps and all that stuff. So 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 I had to ask, like, why? What's the yeah. deal with this? Mm -hmm. And it turns out that that took me down another rabbit hole where I sort of realized, you know what? Viruses are not about the virus. I should have known that anyway. But mm -hmm. ultimately, uh, um, 
because logic tells you this. You know, 80% of the kids in the school come down with pertussis. What happens to the other 20%? How come they gets hit? You know, so, and I, I met with Peter Duesberg back in the late 90s, and he, he was able to, like, set me straight on this. Frank, it's not like bacteria. It's not like bacteria. Bacterial infections are about the bacteria. This is mm -hmm. different. Viral infections are not about the virus. They're about the body's response to the virus. And what was happening here with that high dose, I was suppressing the body's response to the virus. Mm. Too high a dose. With the small dose, I'm stimulating it. Mm. And so yeah. that's kind of what I've learned about how to, how to use these doses a little, little bit better. And in general, we like to use the high doses for very acute very thick conditions because I want to suppress the cytokine storm. And early on, where it's not like that, I want to stimulate cytokines. Hmm. So we can vary the dose based on that. Yeah, and for those who don't know, Peter Duisberg uh, in the 80s was widely recognized as the premier virologist in the entire world until he came up against Fauci in the late 80s and said, no. HIV does not cause AIDS. And boy, that was, Fauci didn't like that. And he just blew him out of the water, discredited yeah. him and just smashed him to pieces. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, he, he was, or still, is he still alive? Nope, he passed on about, uh, what, two years ago, I think. Okay. So yeah, he was definitely a pioneer, no question. So yeah, it does, I'm not surprised you connected with him. So, uh, but, I, I, but just before we leave the Ibu, I, I think, and I commend you for pioneering that innovation. It was pretty brilliant, actually. But I, I don't. I would agree with you. You don't need these super high doses to treat treat the virus. But I think that there may be a, an improvement, at least what we're seeing clinically from many of the physicians who are using Ibu in their practice, that they seem to be getting better responses than conventional ozone therapy. And it's not necessarily related to the dose. Maybe the filter has something to do with it, or the length of time of exposure. Yeah. Uh, but it's something that, you know, hopefully I think will be adopted because I think there's a, a benefit for it. There's, gonna, there's definitely going to be a place for it. Yeah. yeah. We just need to have, sort out those details. Yeah, yeah. We're in the middle. But hopefully this year, because I mean, the, the equipment is going to be available commercially very shortly to do it. Um, so the, oh, what were the other interventions you use? You said ozone and B vitamins. Are there other uh, strategies to improve mitochondria. So here's, here's the funny part. So all, all the other things that work super well are the things everybody already knows about. Number one, aerobic exercise. Hello. You know, we all know this, but this is how, this is how it works. It mm -hmm. works by, uh, by regenerating mitochondria. Uh, two, certain hormones, particularly thyroid, and we could really have a, an interesting discussion about how medicine has gone down the tubes ever since thyroid blood tests were invented. And we were not doing this clinically anymore, but thyroid is right in the middle of all that. And number three is diet. And that might be a really interesting conversation to have here about this, there, about, about how diet, and I'm mainly talking about carbohydrate content of diet, can affect mm -hmm. mitochondrial function so dramatically in certain subtypes of people who we can identify using mitochondrial testing. But so okay. diet, um, exercise, exercise, thyroid, 
uh, some of the anabolic hormones, you know, obvious things, people, things people have been telling you about. Uh, mercury, lead, how you sleep, what's your stress level like, all that stuff that you already know is important. The reason is, is it important is because it affects mitochondrial function. Mm -hmm. So let's dive a little deeper in some of those. With the exercise you mentioned, uh, aerobic or cardiovascular exercises, did you look at the difference between that, that type of exercise versus resistance training, which done in a high intensity fashion can mimic that, but it's certainly different than going yeah. out right on a bike. Uh, well, so resist, resistance training is really important, especially for the over 60 crowd uh, mm -hmm. or for, you know, uh, lean body mass types of reasons for um, mm -hmm. resting metabolic reasons. Uh, it, it's very important. But it doesn't do unless you're what you're talking about, like some kind of circuit training sort of phenomenon. It doesn't do what uh, classic aerobic training does with intervals. And the wild thing is about two years ago, something like that. In the old days, we used to say six five minute intervals. That would have been in the like the 80s, six five minute intervals. I, if you ever tried that, it, it would make you crazy. Uh, I've done that before. Actually, even not five minutes, well, but like 90 seconds. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Yeah. But when I was racing bikes, that's what we did. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but it would, you would hate the day when you had to do that. Oh, jeez. Uh, now, recently, they published a study where they did head-to-heads. Uh, they took a group of people, put them on one protocol, and then switched the same group to another protocol, and the other group, you know, switched the protocols around and measured them using uh, oxygen uptake analysis similar to what I use. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they really, Joe, they found out that for, for normal people, not athletes, but for normal people to maintain good mitochondrial function, what you need is two 30-second intervals uh, followed by about four or five minutes of rest in between the two uh, and done three times a week. Hardly anything. Wow. But it's, it's impressive. Impressive. Really impressive. Really something. It's really something. So uh, two 30 seconds. What's the intensity? All out for 30 seconds? Yeah, exactly. So basically when, when they do the, uh, when we do the mitochondrial test, I'm able to determine where their anaerobic threshold is. Mm -hmm. and, and I know what their heart rate is. So I have them start off uh, for about two or three minutes at a pace that keeps them at their anaerobic threshold which is pretty, okay. not a big deal. And yeah. you know, what's really cool is that uh, I don't have to worry about anybody if I'm pushing them or exercising them too hard because I know their exact numbers. So anyhow, mm -hmm. I have them do the anaerobic threshold for about two or three minutes. Then they do a sprint to exhaustion. And then they literally get off the machine, sit in a chair, look out the window, whatever, for about three or four minutes until they come down to what I call a fat burning heart rate, which is... I can tell you more about that. But anyhow, it's the recovery zone. Once mm -hmm. they're down into that fat burning heart rate, bang, back on the bike or whatever they're doing for, for one more time. And that's it. The 12, okay, so 13 minutes, period. So you got the warm up, 30 seconds all out, and then you wait until their heart rate gets back in that sweet spot. And then you put them again. So the whole process is about 10 minutes. Yeah. Wow, that's impressive. And how many times a week? Twice a week? Three times? Three times a week we do it. Three times a week. Yeah, pretty, pretty. Simple. Pretty doable for most people, except yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, that's a pretty interesting observation. 
Uh, and you've seen big improvements on the mitochondrial function test. Every bit as good as anything of the harder exercise routine. Every bit as good as that. How does it compare to the ozone or the B vitamins? Well, I haven't done a head to head, but I would say, you know, when I talk to my patients, um, unless they can't do the exercise, and a lot of them can't. Yeah, they're crippled. They're too sick. Uh, uh, I have them do both. So, you know, we're exercising them and doing ozone at the same time. You know, I basically talk to them. I say, you know what? Exercise does this. Ozone does this. Exercise is free. Ozone's not free. Which one do you want to do? There you and, go. Yeah. You know, so, and, and some people we need, we need to not exercise them, but, but that's generally everybody needs to do that. Then we throw those. I get ozone treatments myself every week, just as a, just because I can, and it's easy for me. To it's do. easy, yeah. And yeah. it's like it would it would be super good if everybody could do that. Yeah, I've got I've got an eboo equipment in my house, and unfortunately, I've had challenges getting a nurse in here. But uh, my intention is to do it weekly for a while, and then probably once every few weeks. Very so good. I think it's a great strategy. It is a powerful intervention, yeah. no question. So. Um, Thyroid is another interesting area, uh, and it's actually one of the uh, quotes I've had or no, given to people before, or at least patients, said the way, one of the ways that you can differentiate between a natural medical physician and a conventional physician is what type of thyroid hormone are they prescribing? Because <laughs> I, I suspect you would agree with that. Uh, and so, but even now, since, I mean, because before it was armor thyroid, but that, that went to hell as, as did most of the other uh, natural thyroid uh, prescriptions. They're, they're real, within the last few years, it's become very, very difficult to get natural thyroid. I'm sorry? I said, what's up with that? You know, I don't know. I was asking you, I'm not in the field like you are, but, but you have, a good compounding pharmacy can get it for you, but it's not. You used to be able to write it a prescription at any pharmacy to get it. You can't get it. There's no way you're going to get a regular pharmacy. That is what, if you have thyroid, this is what you want to switch over because desiccated thyroid, there's, there's, two, there's four, actually four different types of thyroid hormones, T1, T2, T3, and T4. They all have iodine in them, uh, but that's not what conventional doctors use. They typically use synthroid or levothyroid, which is T4. And we do need all four of them ideally, but at least T3 and T4. So. Um, if you're going to do it. So why don't you tell walk us through the reason why it's such an important issue. And you, you cannot, you cannot rely on a TSH to know if you're, you're hypothyroid. Yeah, yeah. So thyroid is so critical uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, and I can explain this a little bit more, but first of all, Darren, I have probably 80% of people over the age of 50 have a, a suboptimal thyroid function. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of them. Uh, so that's one reason it's it's important is because it's so common. So it's a common 80, say it's eighty percent over fifty. Yeah, about eighty percent of fifty have suboptimal thyroid. That's function. a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's crazy. And it, does it continue to increase the older you get? Maybe. Uh, you know, I have run into people in their eighties that have really great thyroid function, but you know, it's it's a lot of diminishing returns on that. The older you get, the worse everything gets, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anyhow, uh, what that's all about, I don't know. Uh, that Brownstein's got some ideas, but you know, there's lots of reasons maybe why thyroids go down the tubes, uh, mm -hmm. but they do. And uh, so the way, so 
so so when I first got my equipment, what I what I started doing was measuring resting metabolic rates. Uh, resting metabolic rate is how much energy your cells are producing when you're actually not doing anything. You're sitting very quietly in a chair. In other words, no exertion. And so how much energy do you need for no exertion? Uh, it turns out the resting metabolic rate is almost entirely determined by thyroid hormone. Thyroid hormone hmm. also activates something called UPC3, which is an uncoupling receptor on the uh, mitochondria, which uh, stops the mitochondria from self-destructing. Hmm. So, uh, so thyroid prevents self-destruction of mitochondria. Thyroid also stimulates mitochondrial biogenesis and uh, stimulates mitochondrial division uh, so that you get... When the cells divide, you get representative daughter cells with the same number of mitochondria. So thyroid is absolutely critical. Also, through uncoupling protein number three, uh, that's where a lot of fatty acids come in. So thyroid is, is very, uh, very, very important for fatty acid metabolism of mitochondria. So it hits mitochondria in about four or five different ways. It's absolutely critical for mitochondrial function. And I can't tell you, but a lot of the times, that's the big problem. Somebody comes in, their resting metabolic rate's low, the mitochondrial function's low. I give them enough thyroid to bring the resting metabolic rate up to what would be considered pretty close to optimal, and bang, the mitochondrial function goes right up with it. And, and so you're using your uh, mitochondrial function tests as a tool to determine the thyroid function? Yeah, and the dose, too. We tighter to the, to the test. Okay. Which, which test is that? It, well, it's resting metabolic rate. But resting, and that's different from the mitochondrial test? At, no, the mitochondrial test basically involves two parts. One mm -hmm. is where the patient is very quietly sitting in a chair. Okay, the first part. Resting data. And then we put them on a bicycle and we do okay. a protocol. Okay, so you, it's easier to do the first, the first part. Well, yeah, anybody can do the first part. And it's, it's a screen. So how, can you just outline, because can people do this at home or do you have to have more, uh, more uh, clinical grade equipment to do the, the test? There, there, are, there, there are devices that do this, but you know, I haven't tried them. I mean, cheap okay. little devices. I haven't yeah. tried them. Uh, my experience with equipment over the last couple of decades has been that I don't know how you're going to get an action. Okay, so you can forget it outside of some seriously good equipment. Okay, you need good, good equipment. So uh, are there any other tools or even the thyroid function test that you can use? Like, I mean, I mean it's, you can't use it to say you have normal thyroid function, but it, you know, if it's above a certain level, <laughs> like if it's five, even in conventional circles, you know you're gonna be hypothyroid. But I think the typical, what's your range? Like it should be below 1.5, the TSH. You're talking about TSH? Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't even talk about THH because it's- Okay, she doesn't even like it. It may be the most absolute worthless test we have available today. Okay, good. This is what we need to hear. Yeah, Forget totally the TSH. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't even care about it. Don't uh, test, don't test for I, it. I could tell you all kinds of stories. I mean, like lots of patients, they come in, they're miserable. Mm -hmm. uh, I do the resting metabolic rate. It's, it's what, 65, 70% of what it ought to be. Like, we're mm -hmm. low. I do mm -hmm. ESH, T4, T3, everything's totally normal. I go ahead and I titer them up to where they're 90% of, of what they ought to be. And titer, by titer, you mean just gradually increase their thyroid? I'm hormone. giving escalating doses of thyroid and monitoring it with the resting metabolic rate. 
So until I get the resting metabolic rate up from say 70% up to 90, 95%. Mm. At that point, they'll tell me, I have lots of these cases. They'll tell me, you know what? I feel really good. Everything's wonderful. Thank you so much. See you later. Mm. And then, so then they come back like maybe a year later and they say, I'm miserable. I said, well, how come you're miserable? Well, I saw my doctor and he did (laughs) get the thyroid test. And he says, oh, you're being way overdosed. And uh, so uh, what he did is he he took my thyroid or reduced the dose or whatever he did. And now, and then I went back to him and the doc says, uh, oh yeah, your tests are looking good now. And the patient says, yeah, but I feel like crap again. The doc says, but that's okay because your tests are looking good. So that's how good these tests are. They're totally useless. The patient comes back to me, put him back on the thyroid. That's the end of that story. Uh, but there's so many cases like that. that I, I'll use these thyroid, I'll use T4 and T3 to monitor what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Let's say just absolutely useless. And they're all useless for diagnostic purposes. That's good. Really good to know. So what's your usual progression? You start with a half a grain, quarter grain? Go, I'll gradually probably start over. with one. One grain? Yeah. Wow. And then how, how long do you wait before you bump it up? Or? You know, I'll, I'll, I'll typically start them on one grain and maybe a week, uh, say two, three weeks later, I'll bump them up to one and a half. And then I might want to two or three weeks later, bump them up to two. And which is typical. What, what do those do? That final dose. I, I'm looking at how bad they are and I'm deciding here's their final dose I want to get to. Let's say it's a 90 milligram dose. I'll start them on a 60 and maybe bump them up to 90, wait for about four or five weeks afterwards, and then repeat the resting metabolic rate. See okay, so and I'll 60, look at T4, T3 to make sure I'm not pushing okay. them over that number. So 60 milligrams is one grain, 90 is a grain and a half. So yeah. uh, what do you find most people wind up needing typically, which are typ- typical those grain and a half or 60 milligrams, 90 milligrams, 120? Grain and a, grain and a half probably okay. is most people. Most common? Okay. Yeah. It's good to know that folks, it took 20 to 30 years to figure out. <laughs> it may seem like a simple answer, but that is valuable information. Really valuable. I just want to point that out. <laughs> you might have flipped by most of you, but that's because 80% of the people watching this are probably the vast majority of people watch me are over 50. So 80% of you have thyroid that needs to be taken care of. So this was worth your time to get here to fit, learn this. Okay, so we got the thyroid taken care of. Uh, and deep gratitude for helping us understand that. And then uh, the diet, which is something I've studied for quite a while, and um, I couldn't agree with you more. It's a big issue. So your, your concern is that people, and I, th- I have to agree with you, most people are metabolically inflexible. They're eating far too many carbs, and they've lost with time the ability to, con- to seamlessly convert and transition between bringing carbs as their primary fuel instead of fat. So that your approach is typically reducing the carbs and why don't you tell us what what the strategy you're using and what type of assessment or intervention you're doing okay so a little background on this um when when mitochondria burn if if they are purely burning glucose now mitochondria have the ability to generate their energy by either burning glucose Mm -hmm. or fatty acids Mm -hmm. if they're purely burning glucose they produce twice as much co2 than if they're burning fat, purely burning fat. And you can measure that on your test. Yes. So if I look at the ratio between oxygen consumed and carbon dioxide produced, since it's a linear equation, 
this is important, since it's a linear equation, based upon that ratio, I can tell them exactly how much energy they're generating from glucose and how much energy they're generating from fatty acids. Mm -hmm. So I could tell somebody, listen, right now, you're generating all of your uh, energy from glucose, or uh, you're generating all of your energy from fatty acids. So we have that capability just from using, looking at these numbers to determine that. So uh, now this is all published stuff. So I knew this already. Uh, about early in the game, I have this guy come up from Los Angeles and he's an actor who's out of work uh, at the time. And uh, he's, you know, LA type guy, eats sprouts all day, he's got that lifestyle. He's in the gym. He looks like Adonis. Everything is perfect. And so he came up, we did the test on him, and he, and he failed it, completely failed it. And I said, what's the story on that? Um, and so we dug a little bit deeper. Turns out that his lifestyle is pre pristine, with the exception that he does two mitoc uh, what is he doing? Dairy Queen blizzards a day, which is like a milkshake with a whole bunch of crap in it. And I asked him, well, how come you eat Dairy Queen blizzards? And he says, because I really like them. I thought, well, that's a, probably the best answer to that question. I yeah, heard. honest, honest. Yeah. So uh, I said, I tell you what, carbohydrates in certain people suppress fatty acid production, so uh, or, uh, a metabolism. So how about you stop your Dairy Queen blizzards? Because I have no way of explaining to you why you're so test out so bad. He stops his Dairy Queen blizzards, comes back in two weeks, his mitochondria function doubled in two weeks' time. And mm. at I've had more cases like that. And what I've learned is there's a subset of the population out there that when they eat carbs, it's a, it's a mitochondrial suppressor. Hmm. Now, the, the rationale is that since we're all different, there are going to be a subset of people who, whose mitochondria prefer to get their protons from glucose, mm -hmm. where there's going to be another subset of people whose mitochondria prefer to get their protons from fatty acid. They're just more efficient that way. Mm. So you have, you have these two extremes, and then the rest of us fit on some continuum between those two extremes. Mm. But if you're that guy whose mitochondria prefer to get the protons from carbohydrates, you better be eating carbohydrates. Because if you don't, you're going to have decreased mitochondrial function. And if mm. I switch your diet around, and say, okay, I want you to eat carbohydrates now and come back and test you, you'll test out better. And there's really, outside the test that you developed not that long ago and refined, uh, there's no easy way to differentiate between those groups. No, there right. isn't. But with this test, it's pretty easy. Yeah, yeah, I know. I but most people don't have access where, to this how, test. Almost where you are on that continuum by what the numbers look like. Yeah, so I was going to ask you what you have determined to be the ideal because the ratio you get is 0.7% or 0.70 or 70? 0.7, I think. Yeah, is, 0.7 7 is, is, is the fat is the glucose or is that fatty acid? That's the fat. That's, that's the fat. fat. And, and 1.0 is the, is the glucose. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so, and somewhere in between there. So, but I was going to ask you what, is you, what do you determine is optimum? But from what you said, it doesn't, it depends on who the person is. Yeah. So, you know, you're going to get some people who have a, like a 0.74. In other words, they're mm -hmm. burning fatty acids like crazy. And their mitochondria look great. Hey, eat fat, dude. You're a fat, you're a fat loving guy. Uh, conversely, you'll have somebody that, uh, you know, who's, who's, uh, who's, uh, who's, uh, 
whose ratio is say 0.74 and their mitochondria stink mm. they eat carbohydrates so let's give you some carbohydrates and bring you back and test you but i've done that long enough to know that pretty much that's what's going to happen then you have people in the middle by the way that doesn't matter what they eat you know they yeah. can eat carbs they can eat fat they just swing either way everything's beautiful and if you're that person you're a lucky guy but outside of that you know you have to maybe pay attention to the uh the carbohydrate content of your diet. Well, well that, that is a th- profound observation and you should get some type of award for prize because no one has figured this out before. No one has figured it out. There, th- this is not known. No, uh, wi- no. Widely. I mean, th- no, so, yeah. I mean, you, you, <laughs> you've done a good job in figuring things out. I'm really impressed with your innovation capacity. So, because I think this information just might go over some people's head, but this is profound. I mean, this is not, this tool is, this ability to make that determination, which could customize ideally a diet recommendation for someone is is not known because there is no perfect diet for everyone. It depends upon their metabolic machinery and what their genetics are. Yeah. Well, congratulations. That's really, really great. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you got it, Joe, because I tell you what, most docs don't get this. Uh, I will talk to groups of docs and explain it, and it sort of goes right over their head. Somehow, I try to make it simple, but I'm not making, I'm not getting through a lot. Well, you know, I was impressed when I first heard it and intrigued. So I do have the advantage of having read your book. What can you remind me what the name of your book is? Because it's been a while since I read it. Bursting with energy. Bursting with energy. I thought it was super burst or something. Bursting with energy. That's a good book. I mean, it's still available. Uh, so if you want to go get, learn more about this, uh, you go in great detail in the book and you provide some other insights. So that's another resource for you. Um, man, so that's good. I mean, you just knocked it out of the park with, with the recommendation much better than I thought you were going to. <laughs> well, I was hoping for, I knew you could, I just didn't know that we get there, but you did. So, um, man, you've got, as I, I told you earlier, you've got so many pearls buried in that brain of yours to help people. So, and then why don't you talk a little bit about the peroxide therapy? I mean, that's, I mean, you didn't even mention it, 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 but it's such a powerful tool. And it's like just a, one of the little things you did, but it's, it's incredible. And you figured it out yourself. It, you know, it's, it's, again, it's silly stuff. Uh, but one, one day I, I'm going into the, the clinic, I'm going into the clinic and, and I uh, got a patient with asthma mm-hmm. and, um, she, uh, she is what inhaling albuterol. Okay, so albuterol is making her shake and her, she's got a tachycardia of 120 and blah, blah, blah. And so I'm, I'm treating this patient and, and as I'm leaving the room, I'm thinking, just thinking through that. I'm thinking, okay, she inhaled albuterol and now she's got a tachycardia and her blood pressure's up and she's shaking and trimming. You know, everybody knows this, but it didn't occur to me until that moment mm-hmm. that when you inhale something, it gets in your bloodstream. Now we quickly, all know that. Quickly, quickly. Yeah, yeah. So if you smoke uh, marijuana, if you you know smoke anything, it gets into your bloodstream. Nicotine. So, hello. Right. Uh, so I'm, and meanwhile, I had been for a good twenty years at that point giving intravenous hydrogen peroxide, and so it's intravenous. It never occurred to me. Oh, by the way. If you could inhale it, you don't need to do the IVs. You can actually do this at home. And then I thought, you know what? Where do viruses hang out? They hang they out. They don't hang out in the veins, typically. Hello. 
that's where they are. And in your lungs, that's how they get into your body, through your lungs and your nasopharynx. So how, how much sense does it make to take something like hydro, uh, dilute uh, concentration of hydro, uh, hydro, hydrogen peroxide that's known to kill virtually every virus, probably every virus that you dunk into it. Can we find a concentration of hydrogen peroxide that is known to kill virus, that is safe to put in the lungs, that can, will work systemically? So basically I piddled around until I found that and that's it. It was It's pretty simple type deal, but it's unbelievably effective at how it works. And so why don't you give us a summary of your years of work and research on this to figure out what the final concentration of hydrogen peroxide is? Because knowing that the stuff you buy at the drugstore is 3% and it has stabilizers, which you don't want to inhale, you want to get food grade. So if you get the food grade, what concentration does it need to be diluted to? Yeah. So by the way, in a pinch, you can use the off-the-counter stuff. You yeah, don't yeah, if you had to. Basis. But if you're stuck someplace and that's all you can get, you can still get away. Do it. Yeah. yeah, better than um, nothing. Yeah, so already I knew what I could put safely in the bloodstream. So that gives me a pretty good idea. And then all I, after that point, all I need to do is figure out osmotic, osmotic pressure mm -hmm. because I didn't want to put a, a hypertonic type of solution into the lungs because we know that can be aggravated. I don't want to aggravate anybody's lungs because I want to give this to chronic lungers and all kinds mm -hmm. of people like that. So I need to get that dose down. And then I, then you can go to the books and you can figure out what the concentration needs to be to kill viruses. So I found that happy medium. And uh, basically I tested it on myself. I just kept on raising the doses till I started coughing and getting, having a problem and trying to figure out what that nice sweet little, what's the, what's the highest concentration that I can safely take into my lungs without bothering me. Was it 0.1%? Uh, yeah, it came out to uh, like a 0.1. Now we can go up to 0.3 with some people. Uh, Which is 10 times lower than the stuff in the grocery store. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so normally 30 times lower, which is good. Now, I want to address the hypertonic component because there's been a lot of research just using hypertonic saline, like, you know, 3% or 9% saline to have really important benefits, just nebulizing it without anything. Really? Okay. Oh yeah, I can show you the literature on it. It's it's pretty amazing. They even sell it on Amazon. And what are they using it for? It's a mucolytic. It breaks up the mucus in there. They, oh. I think they even use it for for cystic fibrosis. Huh. Yeah, hypertonic okay. saline. So I think by itself may may have a very potent virucidal effect. So and when an you combine, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe maybe we need to start throwing that in there. Yeah, I'll, I'll dig up the paper for you. And then the other component is adding some iodine. I was a little skeptical of David Bronstein when he was doing that because he's he's kind of biased. He loves iodine. Uh, but I think he's right. I think the, and then, you know, Peter McCullough, who is a conventional medicine warrior in COVID-19 battle has been heavily being censored and lawsuited to death. But he independently came up with this uh, iodine approach too. Just in, he was recommending uh, not Lugol's but uh, betadine or probidine yeah, iodine, yeah. which I think Lugol's is a lot better and safer. So small amount, you don't need a lot. You don't need to <laughs> be squirting up Lugol betadine up your nose. It'd have to dilute quite a bit. So, but that I think is a powerful intervention. The betadine or the the iodine, Lugol's iodine, a drop or two, and uh, the one point one percent and some maybe hypertonic saline. I've been I've been using the betadine. And uh, um, and and how much? Just, just a drop? Nasal, like no, actually ten drops. 
but using it what, in, in, in the, the, in the and so you oh so you're not you're not nebulizing that no 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 it's a nasal wash where you okay. use a neti pod or use a sinusols or you could use a syringe and shoot it up there which did you absolutely great did, how did it work compared to the nebulized uh well if 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 the patient has significant sinus congestion i'm adding that in it's way way oh better. so it's addition it's to nebulized, but more okay. for the congestion aspect okay great and how, because it's such a treat to be able to talk to someone who's in the field using these interventions, because I'm not doing that. I mean, I would have 20 years ago, but I'm not there now. Uh, so how does the uh, nebulized peroxide compare to the ozone? Oh, okay. So, uh, so ozone, you got to be careful with. Uh, of course, you can't inhale it. No, no, no. I'm just a, an IV ozone treatment compared to nebulizer. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, I, I yeah. think the ozone. I think it's stronger. I use it more. I'm more that's, that, that's what I thought. I just wanted your confirmation. Yeah. Yeah. So, but obviously more expensive. You got to come to the office. It takes a lot more time. Yeah. Can't do it every day at home. So, but, but if you're, and I, I, if you're in a, if you're in really sad shape, that's, that's my, I mean, I put it on my protocol too, is that you got to seek someone out who can administer ozone. And I would assume, uh, but I'd like you to confirm your clinical experience that the sooner that you administer that, the better. And the longer you're waiting, the more time the virus has had to replicate without some type of intervention, the worse the outcome is going to be. Yeah. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's true for virtually any viral infection. You want to get it early on before it started to create havoc. Uh, the yeah. more, if you wait till it's late, it's going to be harder to dig that patient out. You can do it, uh, but you might actually even have a fatality if you're not careful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, these these interventions are powerful, but they really need to be started early. And that's one of the things that we're, I'm sure, in complete agreement on. This prevention is the, is the best because you can start these therapies before you have symptoms. You know, the way I approach my life is I, I assume I have a terminal cancer. I'm coming down with Alzheimer's next week. So I'm doing every intervention to stop that. <laughs> just doing it, just assuming the worst, you know, because there's not much of a hassle to do it. Nothing wrong with that. That's a good way to approach things. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. So because why not? Because I can do it and I'm open to it and I don't mind. Now, so, are you familiar with the, the Franzini COVID study? No, I don't okay, think so. so Frank, Frank, he published this a year and a half ago, it was in August of 2020, uh, which is, is such a sad thing because when you look at it, you realize that 80% of the people that have died from uh, that unnamed virus here in the US. Just, oh, you can name it because I'm, I'm censored anyway. So this is okay. not going on YouTube. 80% <laughs> uh, of people that have died from COVID 19. Uh, you know, would die from medical malmanagement. That's the sad part. Oh, uh, yeah. Most but it also points out what we just talked about, how important it is to get people in early. Because Francini, mm -hmm. he published on 50 patients uh, all over the age of 75 or, or average age of 75, all with acute respiratory distress syndrome, all requiring oxygen ventilation, all with CT evidence of pneumonia. Uh, so how, how good do we do with survival rate here in this country? We're at 25%. His survival rate was 96%. Uh, yeah. One of the points also that you can make is he still had 4% um, die. So, but it, so I've never had anybody die, even though I've treated lots of people like that. 
Uh, reason being because I got them on the same time. They're bang. They're on that hydrogen peroxide and the quercetin and all the rest of it. And in and then when I get them in, then we're you know pounding them with ozone and vitamin C and such, and some quercetin. And we haven't lost anybody, but but no, it that's gets good. Good to see you. It's pretty close sometimes if they wait too darn long. Yeah, I know. So how many people have you treated successfully? Oh, I haven't even counted them, but I got to say 500,000, something like that. Wow, that's a huge number. I know Zelenko had a big big cohort too, and yeah. his numbers were in the high 90s, I think. And the only people yeah. who didn't work for be they came to him too late. You know, he was getting people yeah. from all over. So you've got to get this thing moving. So, um, that's a useful strategy. So what are the other pearls? If you can look back and say, what, what made the, what moved the, the marker the most for the, the most amount of people that I could think that you could think of? I mean, what are some, if you could say one, maybe three things. I mean, you mentioned a bunch and if it's one of the ones that you mentioned, that's fine too. But I mean, I'm, I think you got a few more good pearls that we can <laughs> get out of you. Uh, well, let's see. Um... Well, we've talked about viruses. We talked a little bit about immune systems. Talked about prevention. Haven't really talked about heavy metals, but I think most people understand they have. So heavy metals slash detox. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think okay. most people understand that that's an issue. That's a good discussion because let's talk about detox. Because I've come to my own conclusions, never really implemented clinically other than myself. So, what what is your strategy for detox? Uh, first of all, you know, I, I like to look, I like to screen people for, okay, so I'm going to do that, that, uh, that mitochondrial function test on everybody who walks in my clinic, yeah. sick or not sick, unless they can't do the exercise part, which right, they right. Do the rest of the requirement part. For, for being evaluated by you. If they look good, if they have got great mitochondrial function, that's the end of my story. I don't really go ahead a lot further than that. Yeah, so I, no detox, I, I, nothing. Yeah, I don't, uh, you know, I'm thinking, okay, whatever amount of toxicity you have, you're dealing with it appropriately. You can detoxify it. Your methylation's good. Your mitochondria are good. Everything's in in balance. Mitochondria are so sensitive that that test is a very global parameter for health. That's a a parameter in itself. Yeah, yeah, so, so many things screw up mitochondrial function. That if you've got good mitochondrial function, you could sort of say, ah, I guess I got my ducks in a row here. Everything's looking pretty good. So if they don't, though, what mm-hmm. I like to do is to um, use a urinary porphyrin profile panel. That 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 uh, urinary porphyrins uh, that the profile are very sensitive to toxins, particularly heavy metals, and based upon the uh, the uh, various abnormalities that might occur in that panel, you can almost tell what toxin it is that's doing that. So it's a really good way to screen for toxicity, uh, particularly heavy metals. If if they do poorly on my mitochondrial test and they do poorly on the uh, the UPPA test, now I know. Yeah, we need to have some very aggressive detoxification with them. Normally for the me, that means colonics, saunas and uh, chelation therapy for whatever metals they've got. Mm. You like the saunas? Yeah, I like saunas. We've got, you know, one of the ozone saunas in the clinic. Is that the whole, the whole cat? Not, you know, I had the whole cat, but 
I bought one early on and it broke down and it wasn't any way to get it fixed and it was kind of a hassle. So uh, I'm just, something similar, something similar. Yeah, it's, it's just it's a it's a lower technology sort of device. It doesn't have the CO2 tanks or anything like that, okay. uh, but it works or, great. Or the PMF. Uh, it doesn't have. Yeah, it doesn't have anything. It's just simply uh, a steam sauna with those. In. Great. Yeah, I like for me, I'm liking. Uh, and I th I'd like to get your feedback on it, too, because I've recently learned that. Melatonin, melatonin, ninety-five percent of melatonin is not produced in the pineal gland. It's yeah. produced. It's produced in the mitochondria, typically in response to near infrared light. Huh. Okay. So, and you know, for energy production in the mitochondria through the electron transport train, it's going to generate ROS, reactive oxygen species, and that's you know when that gets excessive, that causes serious damage. So, mitochondria is a, I mean, melatonin is a as you well know, is a very powerful antioxidant. So that's why I'm really fond of near infrared saunas. And most people are familiar with far infrared saunas. They have these heaters and, and you know it's a far because there's no light. You can't see far infrared. Near infrared is visible for the most part, at least at low end, you know, six, 600, 700 nanometers. You can see that as red light. Mm. You can't, if you can't see the light in the sauna, there's no near infrared. And far infrared does not produce mel uh, mitochondrial mel melatonin. So I figured out that the best way to do that is to buy an old far infrared sauna that almost invariably has high electromagnetic fields, either magnetic and or electrical fields that you do not want to be in there. It's, 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 it's a, I would say less than 5%, maybe less than 1% of far infrared saunas are good EMF wise. It's almost universally they're bad. So I wouldn't be in there, but you can use them to preheat it. And then you preheat the sauna up to like 150 to 170, depending, maybe even 140 if you're you know kind of gently going into it. And then you add, once it's up to that high, then you add, then you shut off those far infrared devices. And then you put, you hang, I like sauna space. They got these four bulbs. You get their, their total no EMF, no EMF on these and they're full spectrum from near to far infrared. And you can totally act, you know, you can get your, your you can start to sweat like a river because you need to really, really sweat. I mean, you need to measure like lose like at least a pound of water that you can measure on the scale, if not two or even three pounds of water, sometimes four, if you're in there for about 20 minutes and you're just sweating out. It's not hot enough, you're not sweating, you're not working. But with the sweat comes out those toxins, but you're also feeding the mitochondria and you're really providing mm. that melatonin, which is, I never, I mean, this is, this is, I, you've heard of Russell Ryder before, right? He's, he's oh, a big yeah. Yeah, melatonin guy. He's the guy that wrote about this. That's where I learned oh, it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's the guy. He's the guy. I mean, he's the grandfather of melatonin. Yeah. There's no finer researcher in this area than, than Russell. Um, yeah, we had him talk to our group what eight nine years ago you did i was going to ask you you know I'm, i think i'm going to connect with him i want to interview him because i mean he's such oh, a he's awesome like, yeah he was like i think 82 years old at the time he talked just extemporaneously with a huge amount of energy for like 90 minutes yeah yeah he's a good guy than heck we did questions funny 82 years old he was yeah i think he, i think 
he needs your mitochondrial test. He looks like he's got a little bit excess. He probably needs some help, but, uh, <laughs> but, but nevertheless, his mind is still good. Well, he takes 100 milligrams, 180 milligrams of melatonin every night and been doing it for years and years and years and years. Yeah, I, 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 I wanted to discuss that with him because I'm not sure that's the case. But anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. I, I really think that the near-infrared, just on the base of increasing mitochondrial melatonin, uh, and then also accelerating the release of bound up toxins is such a powerful intervention. I, it's, it's an intervention I do typically four times a week. I used to do it every day. Then I found that it was a bit excessive. Where are you getting the near infrared? Oh, there's a, there's a company called sauna space. Okay. And they make, they make a tent that has these bulbs in them, but the tent it doesn't have to be EMF free, and that's a it's a pricey tent. It's like five thousand, but you can just get the set of these bulbs for, I don't know, it's one to two thousand somewhere in there, and just oh. it, and retrofit it into a regular sauna that you take the seat out because you can't. It, it, there can't be any bench in the sauna because it, you just have to move around. Unlike a, the whole because you it's a directional sauna, so you like you have to rotate every five minutes, like your front, your side, your back. Oh. So you you treat your whole body but boy you are sweating like a river you really are and huh. it's 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 pretty crazy i mean I, I will lose somewhere between two and three pounds when i go into the sauna uh and huh. uh you know and i've had a number of different tests done for toxins and they pretty much i'm at the record low level <laughs> it really works uh it helps if you take some binders too but uh, anyway that's what that's what i've been using i'm just wondering if you've looked at that no, I haven't, but I will. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Um, so, yeah, toxic. I like the porphins is a good test. And then you, uh, if you find that, then you just put them in the toxin, in the sauna detox protocol, and then you retest them, I'm assuming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, any preventive that you like? I mean, other than... I guess life is prevention. I mean, it seems like you, is there, what's your favorite? What's your, if you had, if you were restricted to a favorite activity and intervention, what would it be? Probably ozone, I would think. Well, activity would be exercise for sure. Exercise. Yeah. Um, uh, in terms of, you know, strategies that I use in the clinic, yeah, it would have to be ozone. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, yeah. we just do that all day long. Came to my clinic, you just got, there's ozone all over the dang place. <laughs> Well, okay. Anything else you'd like to add before we sign off? Oh, gosh, I can't think of anything, Joe. We cover a lot of really good space. We didn't talk too much about the immune system. and uh, Oh, that's right. You've had some really innovation. That might be nice thing to catch. If you want to catch it now or catch it another time. But about this TH1, TH2 sort of. Oh, yeah, yeah. Why don't you talk to us about that? Because I've heard, I've heard you discuss that in the past. It was pretty brilliant. Yeah. Um, so, so. So back it back, I think it was 1994. There was a study published uh, looking at homosexual men and it had to do with AIDS uh, and HIV positive, and um, and they they all these men were HIV positive, but only a portion of them had AIDS, and they were looking to find well what's the difference here, and they um, they found that of the ones that had AIDS, a hundred a hundred percent of them we're all in a TH2 dominance. And uh, the ones that didn't have AIDS, 
uh, only 30% of them were in a TH2 dominance. They were in a TH1 dominance. And then they went on to make assumptions. But I looked at that study and I thought, wow, you telling me that 31% of men in the control group here uh, were, were, were already in a TH2 dominance? That's pretty pathetic. Uh, which which basically means their immune their innate immune system is more or less shut down and and they're in a th2 humoral system imbalance i thought the th, I, th1 is the innate and th2 is the humoral so the th1 is the innate system yeah that's that's yeah, an important yeah, one that that that, yeah, that the yeah. vaccines don't touch they don't touch oh they ruin it yeah they, they ruin the th1 because what happens is and what i learned from this paper was that the uh, TH2 system produces cytokines that suppress TH1. Mm -hmm. TH1 produces cytokines that suppress TH2. Mm -hmm. so it's sort of like one aspect of the immune system is saying, okay, I got this. We mm -hmm. don't need your, you anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so what happens is we've got a significant number of our population of so-called mm -hmm. healthy people that are in a TH2 dominance. And the, the kind of one of the ways that I led up to me until I saw this paper, and I was so I was so confused because back in the early days, like the 80s and such, it was a really big thing to test uh, you know, for antibodies for every mm -hmm. moment, whether it's candida or cytomegalic or whatever, everybody's tested for auxilian antibodies. And the conclusion we were all coming to is if you have a lot of these antibodies, that means you're super duper infected versus somebody who doesn't have a lot of these antibodies. Uh, turns out that's just not the case uh, because there's no way in the world that you know some poor son of a gun is going to be super infected with five different viruses and candida. That's mm -hmm. just what that's not going to happen. The problem is not that these antibodies are being caused by super infection type situations. The problem is they're in a TH2 dominance. And that's what they do. They live off antibodies. So, and, and so this paper in 1940 like, led me to believe, yeah, by the way, and maybe as much as a third of the population out there is already in the TH2 dominance. Number one, why is that? And number two, who's going to probably get sick if they don't have an innate immune system? Because that TH2 dominance is going to shut down their innate immunity, their NK cells and cytotoxic uh, uh, cells. Um, and then, you know, uh, I'm reasoning, yeah, so, so, so what, what do we do that's making all these antibodies? Hello, vaccines. What's the definition of a good vaccine? When it makes an antibody. Every time you get a vaccine, you're automatically suppressing out your innate immunity. So I don't know if you saw this data. It wasn't, it wasn't peer reviewed or published, but it was just statistical data. That came out a couple of years ago comparing countries, the death rate from COVID in countries that were that uh, the, where the population was highly vaccinated for the flu, the annual flu vaccine, compared to countries uh, where they had very low number of populations uh, that had the flu vaccine in, two, in 2019. And the uh, something like their, the death rate was 400% greater in the countries that where they, most of the people had the 2019 influenza vaccines. And 
stands to reason. Yeah, you just suppress out their innate immunity. Um, so, so at this point, so that was one thing that got to me. Yeah, you know, uh, vaccines aren't aren't really helping this game here. Um, and but the other thing that got to me is that we know from Bocce's work that uh, ozone stimulates gamma interferon, which is a Th1 stimulant, and suppresses out Th2. So my conclusion finally was, if we add it all up, why does ozone work for every flipping uh, viral infection you can get? I don't even care what it is. I don't care what the name of it is. Sometimes my patients come in and they've already been tested and we know they have hantavirus or West Nile or whatever. Otherwise, I don't test. I really don't care whether they got meningitis or what the heck the name of the virus is. We just do the same thing over and over again to get well. How can that be? It has to do with the fact that I'm taking them out of a TH2 dominance, putting them in a TH1 dominance. Hmm. That's brilliant. So and, and I didn't realize that ozone increased uh, gamma interferon. Yeah. You know, there, and Judy, yeah, Judy Mikovits has been a long proponent of interference. She was enamored with it in the 80s when she first yeah. learned about it and mentions it in her protocol. But I've never seen any protocol like from the frontline critical care doctors or any others, Zelenko, his integrated interferon. And I, I'm wondering why do you think that is? I mean, you're doing it, but you're doing it in a way that's biologically appropriate because the body's going to make it itself and it's not going to make it excessive. And I think one of the complications of using interferon is that if you get the dose wrong, it could make it really problematic. These cytokines, and I learned all this from uh, Vilio Bacci, who's just a brilliant cytokine researcher. Uh, but, you know, he told me, he said, you can't mess around with individual cytokines. He says, this is a, this is like an orchestra. This is a balance and they change what every 30 minutes and so to to go in with one cytokine and start injecting that you're just doing nothing but asking for trouble uh, you're, you're qualifying interferon as a cytokine oh uh, yeah yeah so interferon is a cytokine interference okay. uh, gamma he says you can't you can't um you can't go in and just do one you because Okay, because so, it's an orchestra. An orchestra. You're going to screw it up. Response. You're going to yeah. screw it up. Yeah. yeah. And you can that that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Perfect sense. And and that's and why ozone's so nice because it's beautiful. It, it just stimulates the cells to do what they want to do anyway. It's kind of like molecular hydrogen. Just that we <laughs> screw it up. But they know oh, it. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I did not, I was not aware of that. That is brilliant. I'm going to have to commit that to permanent memory because that is a valuable piece of information. That is stellar. <laughs> That's why ozone is one of your favorite. It is your favorite medical intervention. <laughs> suppose, suppose you're in a country like Israel and uh, they start lobbying, then your next door neighbor starts lobbing mis missiles over to you. And uh, the defense minister comes and says, oh, listen, we got a problem here. These missiles are coming over uh, on a regular basis. And the president says, yeah, don't worry about it. We've got this uh, anti-missile thing. We've got this whole thing. Every time they shoot a missile up, we're going to shoot their missile down. It's going to be okay. So the guy says, okay. So then he comes back about three or four days later and says, no, we got a problem, Pres. You don't understand. They, they keep making more and more of these missiles. they got about 30 factories over there cranking out these missiles now. <laughs> possibly keep up with all these missiles coming in. I don't care how many anti-missile defense systems we have we can't keep up with the continuous barrage and all they do is keep making more and more factories 
Uh, and the guy says, you know, seriously, we have to go in there with some special forces. And the only way we're going to win this war is to knock out the factories. Just knocking out these individual missiles is not going to cut it here. This is a viral infection analogy. Mm -hmm. That's what viruses do. They come into our cells, and at first, no big deal. But then they start replicating themselves and releasing the missiles out into the bloodstream. And then the missiles are going and doing their damage and affecting more cells, and it starts to get out of hand after a while. You cannot control that by knocking off the missiles. You cannot control that by killing the free virus. The only way you can control that is by knocking out the factories. You have to kill the cells that are making the virus. You have to kill them. And antibodies can't kill cells. All they can do is kill the missiles. They, they will never get that job done. Uh, but they will suppress out your innate immunity, which in fact can kill the cells. Uh, you know, the cytotoxic T cells, the NK cells can kill cells. They have that capability. So all we're doing is knocking out the factories when we do things that stimulate NK activity and cytotoxic and Th1 uh, cytokines. Yeah, you know, that's a brilliant uh, metaphor, and it, it perfectly explains the, the, the ludicrous approach that conventional medicine has yeah. taken this, this pandemic, because yeah. they are turning our cells, our cells into factories of making a toxic spike protein that yeah. makes all these antibodies. So you've, you've got to wind up killing your cells that are infected with the instructions to produce these. I mean, that's the only way to solve it. You know, it's just it's interesting. I just have to share an interest, uh, a story that uh, last weekend I, had, I, I talked with the father of a 20 year old in Tampa who uh, is, was scheduled for above the knee amputation from complications of COVID. And I thought it would be easy to prevent that because I thought it was a blood clot, but it turns out she had rhabdomyolysis and really had just devastated the, the tissue in her legs and there's not much left of them actually. So probably gonna to have to do that. Antibody-mediated problem. Yeah, it was because she was injected twice with the jab and then wound up getting COVID. So she was primed to produce all these antibodies which destroyed her body. Yeah. And it was just so sad to have a 20 year old athlete just have to have a bilateral above the knee amputation. It's like, so, but, and it was, I guess there's not much you could do at that point because the damage was done. The horse is out of the barn, yeah. but, but it just, just as a story, I share that because it illustrates the danger of this massive antibody pr production that is believed by conventional physicians to be so beneficial. And they're not ever considering the downstream, the downstream consequences of that. Yeah. Yeah, they just want to give it to children and the rest of it. It's oh, yeah, yeah. The, 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 <laughs> now they're down to six months old. Six months old. It's just, it's, it, this is just such yeah. ridiculous, insane criminal behavior that they're doing. But anyway, that's a different story. Uh, thankfully, we have clinicians like you who are, who are out there uh, innovating continuously and providing us with these simple, relatively simple strategies that can make a big difference for us. And I really thank you for all your hard work. It's not easy being a, a natural medical physician. <laughs> you're, you're one of the leaders out there. So I really appreciate all, all you've done over the years and will continue to do. 
Oh, before we sign off, I want you to, how does someone find out about you and what's your clinic and, and, and maybe list is, does your site have a link to other clinics that you've licensed to do this test for the mitochondrial function? Yeah, actually it does. The name of the, the, the name I gave to the test is I call it bioenergy testing, bioenergy okay. testing. And so the website is bioenergytesting.com. Okay. And that will list some of the clinics around the country that are doing the test. Um, and also they can get, they can get to that link and some other information about the test uh, if, by going to my website, which is antiagingmedicine.com. No hyphen, just antiagingmedicine. Just antiagingmedicine.com. Good. Good one. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, I, it's so, I'm so glad we got to connect finally. You know, we've known each other for a while now, but we never really did, did a formal interview like this. And we can tease out all your brilliance and explain it to people and they can benefit from it. So thanks for, for allowing us to do that. Okay. My pleasure, John. Thank you for all the good work you do too, buddy. Uh, you know, guys like me are, can be doing what we're doing, but you're out there getting the word out. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah, nobody getting awesome. the word out. Come on. We're just working in isolation. And so, so I feel privileged to be on your show. So thanks. Well, thanks. It's a, it is a privilege true indeed to be the number one spreader of misinformation yeah. in the world. Ah. So. <laughs> oh, it doesn't even come close to Joe Rogan though, oh, but that's okay. Yeah, misinformation. What, a, what a term. What a term. Good grief. Well, thanks. And I'm, I look forward to seeing you in person in June. Yeah, that'll be great fun, man. Great talking okay. with you.